Well, I am excited about the things that are coming soon at Plum Creek. Well, and I'm also excited about this morning. We're wrapping up this series called The Heart of Worship. And I have a great story to share with you today. It's the true story of an Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk. And I realize uh, Habakkuk is normally not on the list of top 10 favorite Bible characters. In fact, most people probably don't know who he is. But trust me, this, this story is exactly what we need to hear right now. This is God hitting us where we are at this moment in history. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, if your Bible is a hard copy like mine, just flip to about two-thirds of the way through and you'll be in the right neighborhood. Now, Habakkuk is in a section of Scripture called the Minor Prophets. Uh, we usually don't spend a whole lot of time in the minor prophets, but there's actually some really good stuff here, and Habakkuk is a perfect example. Uh, in this little book, Habakkuk speaks directly to God, and he is not happy. He has a few complaints. Uh, to be more specific, Habakkuk has some why questions for God, and we can relate to that, right? We have why questions too. Sometimes we ask, God, why is this happening right now? Why aren't you fixing this problem? Why do you feel so far away? Well, here in the book of Habakkuk, something amazing happens. Because when he asks those questions, God answers him. Now, how cool would that be? How great would it be for, for God to answer all of your why questions? Well, that, that may not happen for us in this lifetime, but what we can do is listen in on this conversation between God and Habakkuk. So let's get started. In the early part of chapter 1, Habakkuk goes to God with his first complaint. Let's read it. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting with verse 2. He says, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So Habakkuk is listening. He's going through a very difficult time. And he has some tough questions, doesn't he? Why don't you listen to me, God, when I cry for help? Uh, why haven't you come to save us? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? You know, questions like that are common today. Uh, a lot of people in our time say things like, you know, if God is real and he's good, why does he allow all the pain and suffering in this world? And I can understand why that question comes up again and again. Because at any given time, millions and millions of people are suffering all over the world. You can just look at the news from this past week. Uh, U.S. troops have now left Afghanistan. And with our troops gone, uh, we, we don't know what kind of atrocities are taking place. We do know that it is not a good situation. Another big story in the news was the new abortion law in Texas. 
that law protects unborn babies from, from the time there is a detectable heartbeat. And, and that's a very good thing for babies and their mothers. However, about 800,000 abortions are still performed in this country every year. That is a national tragedy. And then this coming Saturday, we're going to remember a traumatic event that happened exactly 20 years ago, 9-11. It's hard to believe that was 20 years ago. Uh, for me, those memories and those images are still vivid. And if you're 25 years old or older, I'm, I'm sure that's true for you too. So this week, we're, we're going to remember that anniversary, and it's appropriate for us to do that. It's appropriate for us to remember those who died on 9-11, including those who sacrificed their lives to save others. And these are just a few examples of pain and suffering around the world. It's, it's constant. Sometimes we see it from far away, and sometimes it hits right where you are. Some of you are going through a painful time as we speak. So let's be honest. Can Habakkuk, the book, really help us in a time of suffering? Can this book really help us with our questions? I honestly believe that it can. So let's get more of the story. We saw that Habakkuk was angry and frustrated, but why was he so upset? Well, Habakkuk was living in the land of Judah about 600 years before the time of Jesus. And at the time this book was written, Judah was a horrible place to be. Uh, wicked people far outnumbered the righteous people. The rich and the powerful oppressed the poor and the helpless. The court system was hopelessly corrupt. And on top of that, all over the nation, there was an epidemic of idolatry. Judah insulted the one true God every day by worshiping idols. All of this evil was encouraged by Judah's leaders. So Habakkuk was infuriated. He prays to God and he says, do you not see what's happening? Why do you put up with this? And I, I don't want to give the impression that it was wrong for Habakkuk to question God. The Bible never says that. And the reality is, God can handle our tough questions. It's okay to be honest with him. But I do want to point out something. At this point in the story, Habakkuk is talking like he has a better sense of justice than God himself. Sort of like, Lord, in my humble opinion, you should have taken action before now. So that's Habakkuk's perspective in chapter 1. But let's fast forward to the end of this book, to the last few verses of chapter 3. I want to jump straight to the conclusion because I want you to see that Habakkuk undergoes a dramatic transformation. He doesn't sound like the same guy by the end of the book. Uh, let's read chapter 3, starting with verse 17. Habakkuk is speaking here, and he says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. 
and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. So do you you get the message of these verses? Habakkuk says, Lord, even if we suffer terrible things as a nation, I'm not going to lose my joy. I'm going to worship you no matter what. And you know, Habakkuk is not just imagining bad things that might happen. He's a prophet, right? He knows that disaster and calamity are coming for Judah in the not-too-distant future. Look back at verse 17. Habakkuk makes a list of several things that are likely to happen. First, he says, though the fig tree does not bud. Now, figs were kind of like dessert at that time, and sure, it's sad when you don't get dessert, but you can survive. But then moving on, he says, there are no grapes on the vines. Now, grapes there is a reference to wine. And in those times, most people drank wine because their water was not very clean or very safe. Uh, You could get pretty sick from drinking raw, unfiltered water. At the same time, though, wine was still more of a luxury than a necessity. But let's see what he says next. Though the olive crop fails. Now things are getting more serious because olive oil was used for cooking, It was also used as fuel for light and for heat. And if you're not able to cook and you don't have light or heat, you're starting to have real problems. Habakkuk then says, though the fields produce no food. So now this is a national disaster. When the barley crops and the wheat crops don't come in, people are beginning to starve. And then finally Habakkuk says, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. So at this point, uh, the animals have died. The basic infrastructure of this society has collapsed. It's total devastation. That's what's coming. But what does Habakkuk say in verse 18? He says, God, even if all of these things happen, even if our nation is destroyed, I will still rejoice. I will be joyful in you, the one who saves me. Now that response is pretty shocking, isn't it? Because he he does not say, Lord, I'll do my best to just hang in there. I'll try to tough it out as long as I can. No, he says, I will be joyful. I will rejoice. It's kind of hard to understand. And then he makes that comment where he compares himself to a deer. Remember that? He says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. So why would Habakkuk say that God has given him deer feet? Well, have you ever seen uh, those nature videos that show deer climbing up and down treacherous cliffs? It's amazing. A lot of times, those cliffs are almost vertical. It seems like there's really nowhere to put your feet. Got a picture of an ibex climbing up the side of a mountain. And I look at that, and I'm like, where are you going to go next, Mr. Ibex? It looks like an impossible situation. But ibex, mountain goat, deer, they're okay up there because they're designed for this. They're built for it. 
Their hooves are capable of incredible balance and precision. But what's the point? What is Habakkuk trying to say with this metaphor? Well, that, that deer on the heights, it's in a dangerous place. But at the same time, that deer is safe and stable. Habakkuk is saying, God makes me like that. When, when I'm in a place that is unstable, he gives me stability. And that's one of the big lessons of this book. God will do the same thing for you and for me. You can be deeply joyful in a place that is deeply painful. When you scale that steep mountain and you're, you're in pain, you can still have joy. But that joy doesn't come naturally, does it? What's natural is to be scared or angry or overwhelmed. So here's our big question. How can we have verse 18 joy in a verse 17 world? Well, we're gonna see that here today. We've already looked at the beginning of this story. We took a sneak peek at the end, but let's go back and get the big picture. Uh, here's the basic plot of the story. First, Habakkuk makes his first complaint against God, and then God answers. Habakkuk then makes a second complaint, and God answers again. And then by the end, Habakkuk is in that place of peace and joy and worship. So that's the basic plot. Complaint number one, answer number one. Complaint number two, answer number two. And then finally, Habakkuk is ready to, to worship God no matter what. But let's dig a little deeper. We remember Habakkuk's first complaint, right? He said, God, why are you putting up with all the evil in our nation? And here was God's answer. Habakkuk said, God, Habakkuk said, Habakkuk, I see what you see. And I'm not okay with evil. I'm going to deal with that. Justice is coming, and it's coming from Babylon. Now, right here, it's, it's helpful to know a little history. In the sermon two weeks ago, I shared a couple of maps. And yes, I realize not everyone is into maps like I am, so I'll make this quick. Uh, first, let's review what we talked about two weeks ago. Uh, in this map, we're looking at Israel after the nation split in two. There was a huge conflict, and by the end of it, there were two kingdoms, Israel up north and Judah in the south. Now, for hundreds of years, the kingdom of Israel was wicked, rebellious, and sinful, and so God punished them. Uh, he allowed the Assyrians to move in next door. They were bullies. And then Assyrians, they attacked Israel, basically destroyed the nation. The people were carried off. They were scattered across the Assyrian Empire. And the nation basically lost its identity. Uh, Israel was gone, and it did not come back. But what about Judah down south? Well, now we're up to Habakkuk's time. Uh, Judah was also sinful and rebellious against God, but their downfall was a little slower because every now and then uh, a God-fearing king would show up and he would try to turn the nation back to God. Eventually, though, uh, Judah fell into that same downward spiral and the result was very similar. Uh, this time, Babylon was the bully 
And at the point when we meet Habakkuk, Judah is just a few years away from a Babylonian invasion. And the nation is devastated. The temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, and many of the people are carried off to Babylon. But there's a difference this time. After about 70 years in Babylon, many of the Jews came back and resettled the land, and they did not lose their identity. And that was vitally important because God had made a promise. The Messiah would be born as a Jew in the line of David. But all that's in the future. Uh, Back in Habakkuk chapter 1, God responded to that first complaint. What did he say? He said, justice is on the way, and it's coming at the hands of the Babylonians. Now, do you think Habakkuk was satisfied with that answer? Absolutely not. This is complaint number two. He says, the Babylonians? Are you kidding me? They're even worse. They, they, They treat people like animals. They swallow up one nation after another. God, how could you do this? How could you use an evil empire as your instrument? It doesn't make sense. It's interesting, isn't it? God, um, he does use evil people to punish evil. And God can handle our questions. So with Habakkuk's complaint, he responds and he says, don't you worry, Habakkuk. Babylon will be punished too. That whole empire is going down. Sooner or later, everyone is accountable to God's justice. And here in Habakkuk chapter 2, there's there's a long version of God's answer, but I'll just read the very last verse in God's response. He says to Habakkuk, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. In other words, I'm in charge. You can trust me. My justice is greater than your justice. One day I will set all things right. Now, after that second response, Habakkuk starts to calm down. He's starting to go through that transformation. And we already know where he ends up. He ends up in that place where he's ready to worship God no matter what and have joy even in the worst of times. But that transformation, it doesn't happen in an instant. It's not like flipping a light switch. He actually goes through several stages. A preacher named Sol Rexus made a list of these stages, and I'll share them with you. And this process is not only for Habakkuk. Uh, This is something that you and I should go through. Stage one is to lament, to grieve, to mourn. Stage two is to repent, change your mind and turn away from your old ways. Stage three is to remember, And the final stage is to rejoice. So that's the process. Lament, repent, remember, and rejoice. And let's look at these one at a time. First, uh, how did Habakkuk go through stage one? If lament means to grieve, what was he grieving about? Well, we can answer that, right? He looked out at all the evil and the idolatry in Judah, and he was beside himself because it was all just so wrong. And you know, it's appropriate to be upset whenever we see injustice and suffering. 
But that's stage one. To lament is to grieve over the wrongs around you. Stage two is to repent. And what does that look like? Well, if lamenting is grieving over the wrongs around you, repenting is grieving over the wrongs inside you. Instead of looking out a window, you're looking at a mirror. Uh, You see the sin and the faults in your heart. Now, where did Habakkuk go wrong? Uh, Like I said earlier, it, it wasn't wrong to go to God with questions, but at some point, we have to lay down our pride and accept God's will. Uh, we, we, we can't act like we know better than he does. And Habakkuk does lay down his pride. Remember what God said at the end of chapter 2. He said, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, Habakkuk responds. And he says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. And He's saying, God, I'm going to step down. I I recognize who you are and what you've done. I'm going to let you be you. Now, why is Habakkuk able to do that? Well, it's because he's also going through stage three, to remember. That's when you go back and, and you remember who God is. Remember his track record of faithfulness. Remember his goodness. He's always working, even when we can't see it. He always keeps his promises. So when Habakkuk remembers the greatness and the faithfulness of God, he realizes everything is okay because it's all in God's hands. Judah, Babylon, the whole world, Habakkuk himself, it's all in God's hands. And Habakkuk knows that if you have God, you don't need anything else. And that's an important lesson for us today If God is with you and he is on your side, you're going to be okay. You're headed for a time when all your pain is gone and forgotten. So Habakkuk is almost ready for that final stage, but there's one more thing that helps him along the way. As chapter 3 continues, Habakkuk, the prophet, prays a special prayer And in this prayer, he talks about a day in the future because he is a prophet. He talks about a day when God will appear and set things right. God will bring justice. He will rescue the oppressed. And Habakkuk makes a very interesting statement in verse 13. He says to God, you came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. So God will save his people, but who's that anointed one? Well, that's a reference to the Messiah. It's about Jesus. And I don't know how much Habakkuk understood this, but God knew that he would send Jesus into the world to go to the cross and be a sacrifice for you and me. Jesus would be punished in our place, and then God could say, the price has been paid for your sin. And if we accept God's gift of grace and we surrender our lives to Jesus, we can be forgiven and free for all of eternity. We have that promise. And it's amazing. For Habakkuk, this was a game changer. When he remembered who God is and held on to his promises, nothing could steal his joy. 
He was ready for stage four, to rejoice, to worship God no matter what. Praise him for who he is, for what he's done, and for what he's promised to do. So let's bring this back to you and me. How can we have 318 joy in a 317 world? Well, we can go through that same process that Habakkuk went through. And of course, we'd all love to jump straight to stage four. Like, God, give me that joy right now. I'd love to have that. But it doesn't work that way. We have to go through those hard stages and let God deal with our hearts. And that takes discipline. So where are you in this process? Uh, Do you lament over the wrongs in this world? Or have you allowed your heart to grow hard and cold? And what about repentance? Do you take an honest look inside yourself and grieve over the wrongs within you? And then, once you see that wrong, do you turn away from your sin and turn back to God? And then there's stage three. Do you take the time to remember God's character, his track record, and his promises? We can't skip that step. But unfortunately, we often do skip stage three. When are we most likely to remember God? Well, we remember him when we go to Scripture, when we take time for prayer, Uh, when we come together as a church and we remind each other who God is. It's easy to skip those steps. But since we are here as a church right now, I wanted to share a few reminders with you. Uh, Recently, I, I came across a list of truths that apply to followers of Jesus. Now, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, these truths don't apply to you yet, but you can make the decision to follow him today, and then all of these things apply to you as well. So here's the list. We've got eight truths. Number one, because of Jesus, I am 100% forgiven for everything I've ever done wrong. Number two, God is using every detail of my life for his glory and for my good. Number three, the worst case scenario for me is everlasting paradise in heaven with him. Number four, there's nothing I can do to make God love me more or less. His love for me is unshakable. Number five, God's grace is enough. That's true today, tomorrow, and every day. Number six, the almighty Holy Spirit of God is living within me, guiding, comforting, and empowering me. Number seven, when I am weak, that's when I am strong. And finally, number eight, I do matter, but it's not about me. That's a great list. And and when I remember all of those things that apply to God and to me, I can move on to stage four, rejoice in the Lord no matter what. It's like what Paul said in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Everything else in life can be taken away in an instant, but no one can take God away. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
Paul said in Romans 8, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? I do believe it, but you know what? After church today, I have to go back into the world and I'm going to see everything that's wrong and I'm going to be tempted to get discouraged or overwhelmed. And it's going to be tempting to say, well, sure, Habakkuk and Paul, they could be confident and hopeful and joyful in every situation, but those guys are in the Bible and it's not easy to be like those Bible guys. But the truth is, God's joy is available to us, regular people. There are real-life people in our day and age that live with that unshakable joy. We're going to hear some people from Plum Creek talk about that next week. But as I close today, I want to give you one more example of someone who rejoiced in the Lord even in the worst of times. His name is Alan Gardner. He lived back in the 1800s. Uh, Gardner was an officer in the British Navy. He was also a missionary who went around the world planting churches. But one day in 1850, he set off on, on a big trip. He traveled with six companions down to the very tip of South America. And the plan was to share Jesus with people who never heard of him. Unfortunately, uh, Gardner and his companions were shipwrecked on an uninhabited island. They were there for a long, long time, and every member of that group died of starvation. Gardner was the last one to die. After his death, his personal journal was recovered. And in the second to last sentence of that journal, Gardner wrote out Psalm 34:10. Here's what that verse says. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That's an interesting verse for someone who's about to starve to death, isn't it? But listen to this. In the very last sentence of Gardner's journal, he wrote, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Isn't that amazing? For most of us, when do we talk about God's goodness? We're, we're likely to say that God is good when things go well, right? But the truth is, God is always good. We always have reasons to worship him. We always have reasons for hope and for joy. So for the next few minutes, we're going to remember God and spend time in worship. We're going to rejoice in him. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you right now and, and we realize that uh, we don't understand. We don't know what you know. And Lord, we have to trust you. We have to trust that your justice is greater than ours. We have to trust in your promises that one day you will set things right. And Lord, we, we have to rejoice of the salvation that's only possible because of Jesus. So Lord, for, for these next few minutes, 
I pray that we will worship you in spirit and in truth, that it will be from the heart and that it will be a gift from us to you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.